Paul White, once again. Okay. <laughs> Two introductions. Special. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Welcome into the fellowship of believers. I always hate to say welcome to church. You are the church. Welcome into the building where the church meets, where this body of believers meets. It's been a good weekend, man. I've enjoyed myself immensely. I realize this Sunday morning there are always visitors and there's new people or those who couldn't make it out to the meetings. And I always hated that whole condemning, boy, you sure did miss a blessing speech that people get when they don't make it to the Friday or Saturday meetings. But man, you sure did miss a blessing <laughs> the last two, two days. Uh, I, I've been so blessed. I want to honor Pastor. And I want to thank you for this privilege to speak on a Sunday morning. It's always one thing to be invited into a church. I take that with high honor. I take it even higher when it's a Sunday morning. That means the pastor surrendered that weekly meeting. That's a very, very important for a pastor to have that Sunday morning meeting and surrender that to someone else. Is a, I count the high, truly the highest honor on the, in, in the earth is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I thank you and I honor you and your family and I honor this house for what you're doing in Mobile. Um, I know I'm not going to, I go all over the, the, the world preaching grace and ministering to people, I'm not exaggerating. There is a real drought for the finished work of Christ preached in this country, a real drought. Now, people are, it's growing. People are wanting to hear grace and they're, they're seeking it. But every time I walk into a place where there, it's a depository of the grace of God, I'm so amazed and I'm so blessed. And I just want to tell you what a special thing you have here. And I know we're being joined this morning by another church, uh, Pastor Ben and, and congregation from not too far away, right? It's not like across town. And uh, had the privilege of being there last year. And that's another depository of the grace of God. To have more than one in a city in today's church environment is incredible. So I just honor what God's doing in this city. You may not feel like he's doing much. That's what happens. Sometimes when you're in something, you don't see the bigger picture. And you say, well, we don't have as much as we need. But uh, I think God's doing a great thing and a great work. And I honor that. Are you ready for the word today? Hey, go back to John 15. I, we were there last night. I haven't done this very often in my travels. I rarely stop and then on the next sermon go right into the same spot because I usually have something else, and I did have something else for this morning. But as last night unfolded and as we approached the end of the message, I realized, man, there's a lot more material I'd like to cover, and there's a couple different little tributaries I'd like to run down, so let's do that this morning. Um, and I, it's dangerous to do, really, when part sort of the follow-up is Sunday morning because Sunday morning is usually the bigger crowd, and, and now you're dealing with people that didn't hear where you were the night before, and so they might come into it with a sense that they're lost. So let me give you a very condensed version, and I mean very condensed, and it's this. You were created to abide in Christ. That's your whole Christianity. You were not made to exist outside of Christ. You don't live here, and he lives way over there, and your best hope is that someday he'll come back and get you. No. The hope of glory lives inside of you, not on a planet called heaven. If you can get rid of that 
illusion of distance and separation that you inherited from the first father, Adam, the illusion that God is somewhere else rather than in me, if we can get rid of that, we will be a blessed people. We will realize that God's destiny for us is that we abide in him and he abides in us. Jesus said, I am the vine. My father's the vine dresser. You are branches of the vine. You're already clean, Jesus said. That took all the condemnation away from production, from being fruit producers. He said, you're already clean by the words that I've spoken to you. But if you do produce fruit, the Father is going to prune some of that fruit so that you produce greater fruit. And we ministered on what that looked like last night. But that leaves a lot unsaid in John 15, and Jesus says a lot more. So I want to dig back in, if we would. It's beginning in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, what can you do? Nothing. This is it in simplicity. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. You're not pretty good, you're just no good. Jesus says, without me, you will not produce. Nothing will come out of your life. It is not you and I working in tandem, hand in hand. It's you and I as the same individual. It's me living in you. I always was disturbed by the footprints poem where the guy has the dream and he's walking down the beach and there's two sets of footprints. Remember this? And then everybody had, everybody's grandma had that on their wall. Remember that poem? And the guy says, Lord, or, or, what's this dream about? And this is where uh, he, they're, they're walking alongside of one another, and then there's one set of footprints. Oh, what happened? Is this where you abandoned me? This was the darkest hour of my life. Why would you leave me in that dark hour? And, the, and I'm probably botching. I'm, I'm not making it poetic at all. But, uh, and then it was, oh, my son, that's where I carried you, right? And I only... It, it, That bugs me, because there should have just been one set of footprints the whole time. (laughs) And not because he was carrying you, but because he lives in you. And wherever you're walking, he's walking. Wouldn't it have been great if the poem had one set of footprints and go, Lord, where were you? And he goes, that's me. (laughs) Because honestly, without him, you can do nothing Without him, you are nothing, but don't worry. That's not an effort statement. Boy, I want to go out and make sure that I'm in him. Branches don't have to think about being attached to the vine. They'd be dead if they weren't. The fact that you know he exists, that you know he loves you, means you must be attached to him. And if you're attached to him, stress-free fruit production, don't worry about it. The vine dresser is in the vineyard. That's the good news of John 15. It was meant to make you excited. I have a vine dresser. The vine dresser is in charge of me. He waters me. He cultivates me. He prunes me. He picks me up. He ties me to the wire where I need to grow. He keeps the pests away from me. He fights with his rod and his staff. He shelters me and he comforts me. He's producing in me something beautiful and I don't have to stress and I don't have to worry about it. And I'm attached to him and he's attached to me. We are a single set of footprints. 
and I'm walking in him and he's walking in me and I'm living in him and he's living in me and he's flowing through me and out of me is going to come fruit and that fruit is going to bless the nations because that fruit will be a wine that tastes better in the next generation than it does now because what God is doing in me is not just for me, it's for everyone I ever encounter. Now, if you can get that, if you can grasp that, we're in a good starting place today. We're in a great starting place today. So, so I, I told you it was a 30-second recap. It was a three-minute recap. That was the first lie. Uh, and I will try to have no more of those, hey, I'm about to close. <laughs> That's usually the lie that comes out every Sunday morning, right? We're landing the plane. We're not. We'll be here a while. <laughs> Here's something important to me in the, in the understanding of the terminology used in John 15. I want you to notice, look, look at... And, and I, you wouldn't have to inspect every single word, but do just a precursory overview of the first five verses, and what you'll find is no conditions. There's no ifs. The first five verses of, of John 15 contain no ifs, and we love ifs because ifs get us involved. God will do this if you do this, and we go, there, that's what we need to know. In fact, most churches master in the ifs. All the possibilities of what might be if God's people were to do this. And we love it. In fact, we define ourselves by it. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. That's the best one. That's the good church sign one. That's the pre-revival scripture. It's all full of if. But how many of you know ifs are very old covenant in nature? Ifs put all the conditions of God doing work on you and God, this transaction of your performance and then God's favor and then your failure and God's wrath and all of the, the expectations, and most of us just call that religion. And those first five verses contain no ifs. And then, verse 6, if anyone. Verse 7, if you abide. Verse 10, if you keep. Verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And that is the the big if we've been waiting on. All of the, the, the proverbial others shoot a drop in John 15 to try to show us our role in fruit production. But don't be afraid because we're talking about Jesus And Jesus is the embodiment of this Father and the embodiment of the new covenant. And wherever Jesus drops an if, it's different than where you see an if in Moses. Because the if in Moses, the if in the law, has God doing something on the condition that you perform. But the if that Jesus drops, and I think it's only fair to investigate these things in the New Testament. We can't ignore them and act like they're not there. We also can't preach them away. I don't believe in preaching verses out of the Bible because they don't agree with our theology. Or maybe our theology should change. That's how I like to approach the word, to go, well, if the Bible says it, I don't have to preach around it, but I want to understand it. I want to dig into it. I want to unpack it, so to speak, and find out what's happening. And here's what you'll notice about the ifs. When Jesus gives an if, He then begins to talk about what you are going to accomplish, but never in the context of your works, always in the context of your growth. Look at 6. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and burn them with the fire, and they are burned. And if you abide in me, these are the same, this is the same thought. Don't abide, do abide. 6, 7. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. 
Here's what will happen. You'll ask what you desire. It'll be done. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you're my disciples. And as the Father loved me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. What do you need to do on the other side of the if in John chapter 15? Abide. That's how it ends. Did you notice this is where Jesus takes you? When he gives you an if, where is he going to end you up? Just abide. Live there. What happens when you abide? You'll bear much fruit. You don't do anything. You just abide. The branch doesn't do anything. It just hangs there, attached to the vine. The vine's doing all the work. The vine's pulling out of the root. It's moving it through the branches. You're not the root. You're not the vine. You're just the branch. You get all of this beautiful fruit. They shall see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven, but it's this amazing fruit that comes out of you, but it's sourced at the root. And all you have to do is if you abide, just stay there. What about the next one? Ten, if you keep my commandments, well, then you will abide in my love as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken in you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What was the if? Well, the if was if you keep my commandments. Well, that sounds pretty severe. What are those commandments? This is my commandment, 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. That seems easy enough. In fact, it's so easy, you get to love people the way you're loved. This is why we preach a revelation of the love of Christ for believers because believers tend to forget how loved they are. Mankind tends to forget how loved we are. The more we realize that we're loved, the more we can reciprocate love, the more we can give love out. The less we know that we're loved, the less we're going to love people. If you find hateful people, it's because they've been, had hate poured into them. We just simply reciprocate what we've been fed. That's, that's what we are naturally. Whatever comes in is exactly what's going to go out. So if you're fed abuse you're going to spew abuse. If you're fed hatred, you're going to spew hatred. If you're fed love, you're going to give love. And this is what Jesus says. So what's the other side of this if? Abide in his love. Stay there. Know that you're loved and don't leave it. And don't ever let anybody steal it from you. Recognize that the Father loves me. Stay in that love. You are, 14, you are my friends. Here's your other if. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I call you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Ooh, stop right there for a moment. You've been given a big, big if right here, but you've just been given an amazing piece of growth information. You think this was all about you finding him, but I have news for you. He wasn't lost. You hear people all the time go, that was the day I found the Lord. I go, why was he lost? No, that was the day he found you. See, you didn't choose him, he chose you. Jesus says to the disciples, I picked you out. You think you guys came and followed me. But the reality is, is the Father walked me past you. And when I walked past you, I grabbed a piece of the branch and I stuck it into the vine. And I've been cultivating and growing you ever since. And you don't look so great. And some of you are going to betray me and some of you are going to deny me. And only one of you are going to be left with me at the foot of the cross. But I don't worry about it because I know you guys are already clean by the words I've spoken to you. And you are attached to a vine. Now, if he can say this to Peter, who's about to deny him, 
And he can pay th- say this to a group of disciples who don't show up at his own death. What about you and me? And he can say to them, I didn't choose you, or you didn't choose me, I chose you. Just abide in the knowledge that I'm chosen by God. And this is a beautiful thing. You know, God chose you and just live in that knowledge. It's a lot better for our pride to think that we found him. We finally wised up. We discovered God. But pride doesn't stand too well in the light of grace anyhow. It wasn't your works that found him. It was his finished work that found you. It was his work at Calvary in dying and resurrecting on your behalf that found you in a fallen state, in a needy state, in a, in a mentally separated state. Notice I said mentally separated state because Colossians says we were enemies in our minds from God. God wasn't our enemy. We, were, we made God out to be an enemy, and we did it up here because we didn't have the real knowledge of what he thought of us. So all of the ifs, and I'm just taking my time working this little patch of ground here in John 15, all of these ifs are not followed by your works. They're all followed by you abiding. Just live there. Just stay there. Just get in the vine and stay in the vine. And those effort, it's not about effort. It's not about doing. It's not about stuff. God provides whatever God demands. If God demands fruit, and believe me, he does, because let's not be mistaken, growth is not optional for God's people. Growth is natural for God's people. All right, when you get in a vine, when the branch gets in the vine, it's not maybe it will grow. It's in the vine. It will grow. You will grow as you journey in this journey of faith. That's natural. And if God's demanding much fruit, you had an if in front of much fruit. If God's demanding much fruit, how do you produce much fruit? There's no tree. There's no vine that produces fruit by stress, by thinking about it, by squeezing, by trying. They just abide. As long as I have an orange tree in my backyard, as long as that orange tree just abides, there's going to be some oranges. If that orange tree decides to stop abiding in my backyard, then it's going to have problems producing oranges. All right? So if it uproots itself and takes off running down the street, then there's really going to be a problem. Now, that's a real scary if, isn't it? I should probably worry about that. If this tree uproots itself and runs down the street, it shall not produce fruit. And I ought to freak out about that if. Because God knows what a disaster that would be. Of course, it's silly. And that's, that's, I'm, I'm only using that idea because that's what Jesus' disciples would have thought. How could the vine, branch not abide in the vine? It's where it belongs. Whatever God demands, God provides for. If God demands fruit, God's going to provide the fruit. I don't provide the fruit. I, I don't shake and, and tremble to provide the fruit. I'm just a fruit producer. It comes out in me. If you, if you don't see the amount of fruit coming out of you that you want, just wait longer. You, you understand? And I, I try to spread this message to, to pastors and in every church I go, because I, having been a pastor, I, I realize what we really want to see. We want to see fruit production. We want to see people living right. I mean, we honestly do. We want to see 
goodness coming out of your life. We want to see transformation. If you come in with a bunch of trash and hell, we want you to go with a treasure in heaven. I mean, we want, we want that heaven to come out in you, not just way down the road someday when you die, but to start living that now. Why not? You're already an eternal being. And so to let that come out, we want to see that. And there's a, there's a tendency to judge whether or not you're a good fruit tree because sometimes we judge in the wrong season. And so we will, we will look at the tree that has no oranges. What, what do we grow in South Alabama? What was that one? Sap Simmons. Okay, forget that. Apples. How about apples? That's a good one. Thanks. Apples. When you grow apples. I still don't know what language that was that you, that you were growing. God bless you. It's a mandarin. Okay, okay. We'll go back to our orange tree illustration. All right, that'll work. Oranges, apples, cinnamon. I don't know. I don't know what the peach is. There we go. It do, not, not not any fruit tree produces twelve months out of the year. Not every second of every day. You don't always walk up to the tree and see fruit. And what's happening is that sometimes we'll see people, and they're not in fruit production, and we'll go, that that person needs to get saved. That person's backsliding from the Lord. Not realizing that this is all on God's clock. How God produces it in you is none of my real business, to be honest with you. What I want to do is cultivate soil. I want to keep the pests off of you. I want to put sunlight. I want to water you with the water of the word. I want to let the spiritual DNA of being a new creation do the fruit production. And I want to keep you out of the fruit producing business because you'll just stress And you'll think that you're supposed to be producing fruit in wrong times and wrong fruit and abundance of fruit. And you'll be squeezing and pressing. And a lot of times we get so stressed to try to get something to happen. How many of you know that if if all we're really going for, and I don't really intend to go down this road, but let's chase this rabbit. If all we're really going for in the church is external behavior modification, we can achieve that a lot faster by preaching the law than we can by preaching grace. I did not say we can, ex- we can achieve spiritual transformation by preaching the law because honestly, we'll never achieve spiritual transformation by preaching works. But if we just want people to behave, all we really have to do is hammer away at the law and use fear and intimidation. Condemnation and guilt will get people to fake it till they make it. They'll never make it, they'll just keep faking it. They'll keep putting on the mask like I'm getting there, although they're not getting there. And the biblical example of this, the apostle Paul told us that there was two covenants. There was one from Hagar and that there was one from Sarah. And Abraham was the father of both. And that Abraham had been promised a child. And that promised seed is Isaac. I mean, you remember this story from Genesis. And God had promised Abraham in his old age that he and his old wife were going to have a child. And Abraham looks in the natural and says, well... She can't. He felt pretty good about himself. He's older than her, but he goes, she can't. she's She's not much of a helper here. But I got this young lady hanging around named Hagar, and she looks like she's young enough. And it's been a long time since God made me that promise. And I like to say this, if you want God's best, if you want oranges on that orange tree, you just better be patient and wait for the promise because God's in fruit production. But if you just want an orange, 
You can sleep with Hagar anytime you want. Nine months later, you're going to have your bushel of oranges. If production is all you're going for, if you just want to produce works, if you just want to do, you just want to, be, to modify your behavior, you can turn to the works of the flesh anytime you want and just start faking it. And what's happening in the church is we're looking at a tree and sometimes we're looking at it in the wrong season. We're not realizing what God's doing. God's doing work beneath the soil. God's doing work behind the scenes. God's cultivating fruit. And we're not seeing the fruit we want, so we pour on a little law and we throw in a little Hagar and say, if you'll spend a little time with effort and you'll spend a little time on yourself, you'll be able to produce something that's quality. And the reality is you'll get a screaming baby, but it'll just keep screaming. And Ishmael will go to war with every Isaac in your life. Every work of your flesh will go to war with every work of your spirit in your life. There'll eventually come a day where the new covenant will have to say to you, kick that woman and her child out of my house. That's what, the old, that's what will always happen to a new creation believer. Is eventually, this is why there is constantly a pruning that happens in the life of the believer. Because there are going to be those old covenant grave clothes moments where the new covenant is going to go kick that woman and her child out of my house. We don't want anything to do with the works of your flesh. We don't need anything to do with your effort. Your effort is only interfering with what God does. Your effort would clean up the exterior behavior of the local church. But it wouldn't change one heart. And I'd rather have a church that's in a season where you're not seeing a bit of fruit, but everyone is connected to the vine and God's doing the work than to see a church where not a soul's connected to the vine, but we're all putting out pretty oranges. And I believe the new covenant is full of that if and then abide. If and then abide. Not if and then do, but if and just stay right there. What is the point of John 15? Well, it's John 16, verse 1. Listen to this. These things have I spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. Very simple. John says to you, everything I've just written to to you, Jesus is saying, everything I've just said to you, I've said it so that you're not made to stumble. Because if you don't know that you're attached to a vine, you're going to stumble right into your performance and try to do this on your own because you're going to forget, hey, I'm attached to someone greater than me. Jesus is doing the production through me. And when you forget that, you are made to stumble. These words are not to scare you. These words are to provide hope. Now, see, I think a lot of damage has been done with some of the things that we say that sound so theological that aren't a bit theological. And they put God in a bad light. And I've been, I've, I've been guilty of using some of them too. And we all, I think, use phrases and we don't really think about them. Maybe until we get called on it. And we go, hmm, not really sure about that. How many of you have heard this one? I take real umbrage with this one. God is using you in this hour to do something. Anybody heard that? If I hadn't prefaced it with taking umbrage with it, some of you probably would have amen. But you kind of know better now. You go, don't amen that because he don't like that one. <laughs> don't amen. <laughs> he's, about to, he's about to expose that one. Don't, don't, don't say amen. And the reason why I take umbrage with it is because God is not a user. I'm not talking about in terms of drugs, although drugs, really, that, that phrase, he's a user, what does that mean? Why are we using drugs? Because we get an an end is achieved. It's not always the end we want, but an end is achieved. We use something synthetic to get to a, an end that we desire, thus we are a user. Now, we hear God is using you, and we honor that and go, well, that's great, God ought to use. 
We even sing, Jesus, use me, and oh, Lord, don't refuse me. We sang that in church when I was growing up. And I thought that was a really noble prayer, say, Jesus, use me. I realized that if in any other context of your life someone were to tell you, you know, he's using you, we would be hurt and insulted. So if someone were to say to you, you know that guy's using you, we might get defensive and go, oh, no, he's not. But they'd plant a seed and we go, you know what? He is using me. <laughs> he's using me for my money. He's using me for my position. He's using, maybe he's using me for something illicit. Maybe he's using me for something filthy. Maybe, maybe she's using me to get ahead. All of those, it's never good. There's never a moment in your life where someone says, he's using you, and you go, yeah, that's, <laughs> praise God. I love being used. So why have we put God as a user? Because in reality, God doesn't use you. God lives through you. He's not in the using business. I'm going to see what I can do with Justin. No, this is not God playing chess with the devil. And for too many of us for so long, spirituality has been God playing cosmic chess with the devil. We even say these totally ungodly things like, well, the Lord's four steps ahead of the devil. He's a, he's a master grandmaster chess player. And Satan may be making good moves now, but God's already got him cut off at the end. And it's not a cosmic battle. Christ has already won the battle. Him and the devil aren't sparring it out and fighting and exchanging blows. You already live from the place of victory, not towards victory. You already have what Christ has accomplished. God God's not in the using business because when you use, something gets used up. By definition, it gets used up. It always runs out. He moves through you, not using you. When Moses is walking through the backside of the desert, and I live in Southern California, and one thing that I can tell you that we have in abundance and if, you'd haven't, if, you, if you live there or you even go on vacation there, if you haven't seen one yet, just stay longer. You won't have to stay much longer, and that's a wildfire. They happen all the time, particularly in this time of year. Brush fires. And a lot of times they'll happen, sometimes because of lightning strikes, sometimes because cigarette butts get thrown out windows, but they happen because it doesn't rain for six straight months. And when it does rain, everything turns really green and grows really big, and then it all dies because there's no rain, and now you've got a lot of weeds, and now you've got problems. And the wind blows in off the coast, and these fires go rushing across hills. Something as easy as wind will cause a fire in California. Two dry weeds in a field, and the wind will make them rub one another, and that friction will cause a spark, and then the whole field goes up. And so you, as you're driving, you'll be driving on, along the freeway, and you'll see just billows of smoke, and there's helicopters and planes overhead, and they're putting out water. So much so that you almost stop... You know, just kind of ignore it. You're just used to seeing it, and it happens all the time. And one of the residuals, of course, is that the field is black after the fire. You can see, for, for the next six months, you can see where the fire consumed. My point in all of that is you don't really get that excited. You don't sometimes even comment on it. That's sad, but we see so many of them that it's not the first thing out of your mouth when you walk through the front doors. Hey, there's a big fire going on. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, yeah, I saw that. It's natural. It happens in the wilderness. It happens in the desert. Moses is walking through the backside of the desert and sees a bush burning. Trust me, folks, when you live near burning bushes, you don't take a special trip to go watch it burn. It's not that exciting. You see it every day. Moses has seen 10,000 burning bushes. He's seen hillsides set on fire, black, 
following that fire, smoke rolling, no big deal. But if you were to see one, and as it moved, none of the grass was turning black. Because Moses says he saw a bush that burned but was not consumed. Now that you'd pull over on the freeway and get out and watch. So Moses is walking and sees a fire burning, but there's no consumption. In other words, the fire is moving, but there's no black grass underneath. There's not even any smoke because smoke's a sign of consumption and there's nothing going up. It's just a flame. And Moses goes, wow, look at that. How is it possible that that bush burns but doesn't burn up? And when he goes and stands next to that bush, he hears God speak. And God says, take your shoes from off your feet for the ground whereon you stand is holy. What have we discovered? This is how God works through you and me. Because God burns through you and me without using you and I. If God is a user, then the grass is black and the smoke is flying and the bush is being consumed. And what I've seen in life and in ministry is a lot of people dedicate themselves to the work of the Lord and they say, Jesus, use me. And they think it's perfectly natural that their family's falling apart, that their finances are falling apart, that they can't sleep at night, that they're living under stress, that they're always under attack. And they'll say, I'm doing it all for Jesus. Everything I'm going through, I'm going through for God. And they're losing things in their wake and they're doing it for the Lord and the reality is is it cannot be inspired of God if it doesn't bring life if it brings consumption and death you cannot be attached to a living vine because it's natural that if you're on a living vine living fruit will come out of you it doesn't have to come out at your pace but it will come out and if it's just consumption stop what you're doing and re-examine You say, yes, but God called me to this. God did not call you to violence and consumption. God did not call you to hurt and to pain. I didn't say everything will be easy. I didn't say you won't be persecuted. I didn't say there won't be trouble sometimes. For every one of us that partake in the glory of Christ, Paul said, we also partake in the sufferings of Christ. Yes, we do partake in difficult times, but those difficult times do not burn out our soul. They can't because we are a bush that burns that is not consumed. We are a branch attached to a vine. God is not using you. God is living through you. Whatever you are, wherever you are right now is exactly where you are supposed to be. Did you hear that? Whatever you are, wherever you are, whoever you are in Christ right now is exactly what you are supposed to be. It's his job to change you if you're going to change. We do not live in transactional Christianity. We live in process Christianity. We do not live in a transaction. We live in a process. Let me say it again. This is not a transaction whereby you go to God and pay God off for favor and pay God off for blessings by doing stuff for him. God, what would you have me do for you this week? I owe you. Sounds really holy, doesn't it? Real spiritual. But what ends up happening on the other side of that is a transaction. Because here's how you'll pray next week. Lord, just want to remind you. Fasted two days. Read 40 chapters. Witnessed to five people at work. Really expecting you to come through. You go, Pastor, who would ever pray like that? All of us. Every one of us have been on our knees before and said, Lord, I've been praying more than I've ever prayed in my life. Lord, I've been given at church. Lord, I've been doing. Why are you telling God this? You think he forgot or are you just trying to remind yourself? 
Well, the reality is, is we need to say it out loud because there's a transaction that's supposed to happen. I mean, why else am I doing all this? Why else did I work so hard and pray so much and read so much? If I'm not going to get something out of this, what's the point? I mean, I gave you, now you give me. So what are you going to give me? What's the transaction here? What are we trading off? And this is why grace has run into so many walls in the American church. Because at our fundamental core as Americans, we can't stand the thought of getting something we didn't pay for. In fact, we call those people the problem in our country. If you're expecting to get something you didn't put into, then you're just a leech. And what we do is we hear the message of grace in which God blesses man by no effort of man, only by faith that God puts fruit through a branch that is only hanging there on the vine that at many times of the year has no fruit at all. And yet God doesn't cut them off and get rid of them. He cultivates them and he moves upon them and he blesses them. And we say this can't be because this goes against God's heart. This can't be the way it is. It goes against rational thought. But that's because we have transactional Christianity where we have made a payment and we expect something in return. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verse number 4. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace. They are counted as debt. Let me say that again. If you work, your paycheck is not a grace check. Your paycheck is a wage check. You earned it. This is transactional blessings. I get what I get from God because I worked for it. Because I did my part. And I expect God's going to do his part. And Paul's preaching to the Jews who have had a hard time accepting Christ as Messiah in, in Romans 4. And so Paul has made the turn and is going to start describing righteousness by faith using Abraham as his example because every one of his Jewish brethren understand Abraham as the example. And he says, how did Abraham be declared righteous? Was it because he did good things or was it because he believed a good God? Now, every Jew knew the answer. It was simple. It's because he believed good things. In fact, if you look at Abraham's life, he's got some moral problems. He's got some issues. And so Paul says to him who works, those wages are not counted as a grace wage or according to grace. They're counted according to debt. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or accounted. This is an accounting term. It's declared as done. His faith is declared to make him righteous. Just as David, verse 6, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And this is where God actually accounts you righteous apart from what you've done. How is this possible if not by faith? But if we had a transactional Christianity, it would not be possible because we would need a paycheck from God based upon what we do good. And this is why we're putting 2 Chronicles 7.14 on our church signs. Because we have a transactional Christianity. If my people, not if my son, and if my people will believe on my son, but no, if my people will do, then I will do. That's transactional. So when it's revival time, we go into a transaction with God, and we say, God, we are going to fast and pray 
X amount of days and believe that because of that, you're going to move. Hey, fasting and praying X amount of days is not a bad thing. And I want to make sure we clarify something. Maybe I left unclarified last night. Praying an hour every day, not a bad thing. Praying five hours every day, not a bad thing. Praying every day, all day, not a bad thing. Paul said pray without ceasing. Absolutely, great, awesome thing. But once it turns into what defines you, once it turns into a transaction whereby you believe you're going to get something for God, in that moment it needs snipped out of your life. It's in that very moment that it's become a problem because what started good is only going to dwarf your future development because you've begun to pay God off with your performance and you expect a paycheck in return. So if you want to fast going into a meeting, fast by all means. If God leads you to do that, I don't think God will. That's being honest with you. I don't think God will. But if you believe God did, then by all means do it. Just don't base whether or not the meeting's going to be anointed on it because you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because God doesn't owe you for your works. He's already finished the work in Jesus. He doesn't owe you a check. You show up first night of revival and go, what fasted for three days? He goes, I bet you're hungry, aren't you? (laughs) Maybe after church you feel free to go eat. I don't know. Can I deal with that for a second? I mean, how do I find myself in these tight spots, Holy Spirit? It's because you put yourself there, son. That's me answering for God. No, I, I, I very much believe that you and I have Jesus in us, not as a distant entity, not as a place we hope to get to, but we have him here. Jesus was once asked by John's disciples, or by the Pharisees, why is it that the Pharisees and John's disciples fast often, your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, man need not fast if the bridegroom is with him, but when the bridegroom goes away, he fasts. That's because rabbinical tradition said that there was one fast day on the Jewish calendar, that was the Day of Atonement, but rabbinical tradition, the Torah says there's one fast day, Old Testament, one fast day, Day of Atonement. Rabbinical tradition says that if you were involved in a wedding as a Jew, you were absolved from participation in the Day of Atonement fast. It was the one thing that got you out of the Day of Atonement fast. So Jesus uses it and says to the questioners, because if the bridegroom's in the room, you don't fast. In other words, there's a wedding going on. If the bridegroom's out of the room, you fast. He said, my disciples don't fast because the bridegroom's with them, but the day is coming when the bridegroom's gone and my disciples shall fast. And then just to clarify, Jesus says, no man takes an old garment or a A new garment puts an old patch on it. Nobody takes old wineskins and puts new wine in them because they will burst or the garment will tear. He says you can't mix the new with the old. Now, why does Jesus throw that illustration in? Because Jesus is saying you can't take that which is new wine and put it in an old container. You can't take the newness of the new covenant, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and put it in the if transactional container of the old covenant. See, the the old covenant's a transactional container. I'll do this, God, you do this. Jesus says that doesn't work because you have new wine and new wine needs to be in new wineskins. You need a new way to carry this. You don't need a transactional covenant. You need a process life. You need God living his life through you. And so the answer to why don't your disciples fast was because the bridegroom was with them. Listen, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, there's a three-day gap between Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. I believe that the disciples stopped eating at Calvary. Because every time Jesus makes a post-cross appearance on the beach in John 20 and 21, he serves fish over a fire. On the road to Emmaus, when he opens the disciples' eyes, he serves communion to the disciples. He walks into the upper room through the wall in John, in John 
on Sunday night of resurrection, and they don't believe him. So he breaks bread, hands it to them, and the minute they eat, their eyes are open and they understand. They've been fasting, but now the bridegroom's back, and Jesus said, you can stop fasting now. You're not in a transactional covenant. You're in a process where God's living his life through you. Now, if you feel God's distant and he's way off and you feel compelled to fast, I would say the compulsion is because you've made an enemy in your mind out of a distant God that you think needs bought off with his presence and that if you could just buy him off right, he would show up. And you can do that all you want to do it. And you'll have peaks and valleys. You'll have moments where it strikes just right because you did the rain dance and by God it rained. And you'll go, let's work. How do you think this stuff starts in cultures? Rain dance long enough, what's going to happen? Cycle's going to fly around, boom, here comes a rain cloud. Must have worked. We forgot the 99 times we danced, nothing happened. Must mean you got to dance 100 times. That's how we think. <laughs> Every fourth revival, I feel it. So let's, you know, we'll have two or three, and then boom, one day. There it is, slot machine God. Transaction, put it in, pull. Pray, 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 pray. Got it. Isn't this a cheap way to live? But it's a distant way to live. But in the process, Romans 12, it's not transaction, it's process. It's understanding that this is a process by which fruit production comes out. I'm heading towards the end. Romans chapter 12, that was, I'm heading there. I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even give you the pretense that I was closing. Just heading there which in all reality I've been doing since the whole time we got up here. <laughs> Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I'm reading from the New King James. That last reasonable is terrible out of the Greek. It shouldn't be reasonable. It should be rational. That's the Greek word. That you should present your bodies to God. This is your rational service. Let me ask you, why is it rational to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God? It's rational because he already lives in you. It's rational that if God lives in you, then you belong to him and he belongs to you. You're not transacting. I came up through ministry that said, every day of your life, you need to die a little bit more to the old you so that you can live a little bit more to the divine you. And they would misquote scriptures like, I die daily. A scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is literally fighting natural beasts that are trying to kill him on the road of ministry going, hey man, every day I could die. And we spiritualized that and went, see, you're supposed to die every day. How can you die more times than Jesus? Romans chapter 6, if you're baptized into his death, you're raised up into the newness of his life. And he died once, Hebrews says, for all. So Romans 6.12, reckon yourselves dead. What are you supposed to do? Reckon yourself dead. That's up here, right? How many times did you die when you come to Jesus? Once. Paul said, I died. My life is hid with Christ in God. He didn't say I died, and then the next day I died again, and then the next day I died again, and then the next day I died again. And he didn't say I died halfway, because that's stupid. You can't die halfway. You're either fully pregnant or you're not. You're not half dead. You're dead. You're not half alive. You're really alive. You're either in the vine or you're not in the vine. You're not halfway in the vine. His life's either in you or it's not in you. 
And so I came up with that thought that there was that cosmic battle that this was going on, but I understand that it's rational to consider myself a living sacrifice, not a dying sacrifice. That's rational because his resurrection life lives in me, and there's a process going on in Paul White whereby the resurrected Christ shows out, not uses Paul, but shows up through Paul. It's a process that is still ongoing. My old man has passed away. All things have become new. My mind gets in the way once in a while. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind. Not the re-salvation, the re-cutting, the re-crucifixion of your heart, but by the renewing of your mind to the reality that you're a living sacrifice, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's only rational that your body is a sacrifice. That's because you abide in the vine, and the vine abides in you. Your job in this process is to simply renew your mind away from the insanity of religious performance because your mind has been so programmed to perform religiously, and now your heart has been transformed into a new creation, but your mind needs to catch up. And your mind is slow to catch up. Because your mind is processing information from this dimension. And you're looking at this dimension and you're confused by what you see. And you don't see the kingdom manifesting, so you have a hard time with the kingdom message. And you don't see new creations everywhere you look in the church, so you have a problem with new creation message. And we have a problem with issues because we're letting that eye gate and that ear gate, we're letting it take in information, we're processing it through our minds, and we're not trusting the fact that we are new creations. And what happens is we get in the way and we start to transact with a God who has us attached to the vine, and he's saying, what are you doing? Just calm down, relax, quit stressing out. Would it bother you if the people you love in your life don't change fast enough for you? Well, of course it bothers us. That's, but that's an us issue. That's not a them issue. Let me ask you this one. Would it bother you if they never changed at all? Could you continue to call them a brother if they never had an external change? You see, because the issue is here, not here. If any man believes on Christ, he's what? New creation. Old stuff's passed away. All things become new. He's been grafted into the vine. He's, he's sealed in the wounds of Christ. And he's a producer of fruit. It might not be the fruit you want. It might not be the fruit. We've we got fruit pruning needs to go on. We've got those issues. But this mind issue is stunting that growth because we have so married ourselves to our transactional performance that it's hard for us to mentally divorce ourselves from that. And that is the process that needs to go on over and over and over. And there's not a one of us in this room that have nailed it. And there's not a one of us in this room that don't need to keep repenting. What's repent mean? Change your mind. Change the way you think. It's the Greek word metanoia. It's not Webster's Dictionary. Get on your face and sniffle and, and repent or uh, feel bad and make promises. It's change your mind. And every one of us need to do that every day. Would it be okay if I give you the pretext to the vine story? I gave you John 15, then I gave you this John 16, 1. Why? So you don't stumble. What if I gave you the pretext? John 14, one of the most popular moments in the Gospels. The let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house and my mansion. What happens though when we go to the pretext of the vine? So let, me, let me slow down and say this. And I'm, I'm very, I honor the time. So I'm watching, don't worry. Uh, 
the vine illustration is simply Jesus' second effort to tell the same message. I'm not insinuating that he didn't do a good job the first time. I'm saying that he knows sometimes we need multiple examples. <laughs> you know, Jesus was prone to do that. Remember the prodigal? The pastor talked about the, the, the father's love story? That's the third of three stories about lost stuff. In the same chapter, guy lo- loses a sheep. That's the 99. Leave him in the fold and go get him. Next story, woman loses a coin. Turns the house upside down, finds the coin, throw a party. Man loses a son. Finds the son, turns the house upside Why does he tell it three times? Well, because we need help. I mean, he don't need help. We need help. He had shepherds in the crowd. He had, he had housewives in the crowd. And he had dads in the crowd. And he thought, I'm going to reach multiple people with multiple stories. So the vine story of John 15 is just a second attempt to tell the same story. He's already tried to get them to understand how tightly connected they are with him and daddy. But it, but it doesn't take. I'm going to show you why I think it doesn't take in us. I'm not going to try to assume why it didn't take in the disciples. I can't be the disciples. But I know me. And I've read my John 14 up, up and down. And it didn't take because I fell into a classic translation trap. See, I think there's two issues that happen in translation. This is just, let's go back to seminary for just a second. That's not as boring as it sounds, if it's done right, I promise. It can be super boring. But couple issues that happen with translation. One, your Bible writers did not break their letters into chapters and verses. Okay? They did not say chapter 14, verse 1. This is why sometimes you get an incomplete picture if you start at the top of a chapter. Because the last two or three or four verses of the previous chapter, the author had already changed his, his direction. And the translators come in and break them up. John 14 is a classic example of a very poor chapter split. Okay? Then the second issue with translation is you're taking ancient Greek and Hebrew and you're putting it into what is now ancient English. Because most of us cut our teeth on a 400-year-old version of English translation, which, by the way, was translated from the most recent Greek manuscripts that they had, the newest ones. So if I were to copy a letter a hundred times, and on the 100th time, you took that copy and determined your translation, wouldn't you have been better to go back to the very first one and translate? Yes, you would. Problem is, we can't find them. We don't have John's very first scroll. Wouldn't that be something? What would that be worth? But since 1611, we've done better. We don't just have the 100th. Now we've worked our way back and found about the 20th. And we've noticed translation differences. And I didn't throw this one in. This one's kind of a bonus. The third translation issue is that we had men sitting at the table translating from one language into another language. And every now and then, I truly believe their theology interfered with their translation. Because they saw things in the scriptures and went, hmm, I don't know about that. Now, If I haven't already declared myself a heretic with all of that, go with me if you would. To the end of John 13, to verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. 
And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, shall not crow, till you have denied me three times. Here's the classic Peter, I want to go with you, speech to Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, you can't go where I'm going. Before the rooster even crows tomorrow morning, you're already going to have denied me. And we stop right there and go, wow, what a tough story. But did you notice that the next verse, just John 14, 1. And John 14, 1 doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the context. And what Jesus has just done is tell Peter, Peter, I'm going to a place you can't go yet. Someday you're going to go. Peter says, why not? I'm ready to die right now. And Jesus says, no, you think you are, but before the rooster even crows, you're going to have denied me. But don't let your heart be troubled over this fact. You believe in God, believe also in me. You say, Pastor, where are you getting that? That's John 14, 1. That's the next verse. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says what is probably our most famous verse when we deal with other religions. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. And the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, one of the first things I want you to notice is what this verse does not say that every one of us believe it says. Even though we're reading it, we still miss it. Because we use this verse against every other religion in the world to prove to them that none of them get to go to heaven. I am the way and the truth and the life and no man goes to heaven except by me. But it doesn't say that. And contextually, it doesn't mean that. Because Jesus opens with this statement. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Now I want you to believe in him through me. Because he's my daddy. And in daddy's house are many mansions. And I am going to go do something that's going to get you ready for that. But don't worry. I'm going to come back after I do it. So that you're going to know that I am the way and the truth and the life. If you want to know daddy, you're only going to know him as daddy through me. He doesn't say, now hang with me. He doesn't say you can't know God unless you know him through Jesus. He says you're never going to know him as father unless you know him through Jesus. I proclaim to you that Jesus was not making John 14, 6 an anti-every-other-religion statement. Jesus was making this statement to prove to his disciples, you believe in God? I want you to believe in him as daddy. And you're never going to believe him as daddy unless you believe him through what I'm about to do. And what am I about to do? I'm about to go prepare something for you. But don't stress. Don't fret. I'm going to come get you when I'm done. I propose to you Jesus was not talking about ascending into heaven to build mansions for 2,000 years with cosmic hammers and nails until someday he can come back and take you to your mansion in the sky. As fun as that is to sing in church choir, it is not Bible. Instead, Jesus is saying, where I'm about to go, you can't go yet. Don't fret, I'm coming back. It's not even going to be that long. And when I get back, you're going to know the way and the truth and the life. When did he come back? Three days later, 
Peter, you're not ready. The rooster's going to croak. You're already going to deny me. But don't let your heart be troubled, buddy. The whole reason I'm about to do this is so that you can know daddy the way I know daddy. Because right now he's just God to you. And you think you owe him a service. That's the only reason you want to go die is because you think you owe him a service. But daddy doesn't need to kill his children. I want you to know him as father. You are indeed going to die someday, Peter. In fact, at the end of the book of John, he says, you're going to live to be an old man, and people are going to pick you up and take you to a place you don't want to go. And history tells us that they picked up old Peter and they crucified him upside down. And Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to know that way. Now, here's, here's those translation issues. First of all, I love John 14, 6, because what it tells me is this. Every person that I ever encounter that claims they know God I don't have to bust out John 14, 6 and go, no, you don't, because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life to know God. But I can bust out John 14, 6 and say, hey, it's great that you know God, but wouldn't you like to know if he's your father? It's great that you know God. I'm glad that you know God. In fact, you can figure out there's a God just by nature. Creation will teach you there's a God if you let it. Every culture in the history of the world's come up with a God. Maybe they call him the sky God or the water God or whatever, but they know there's a greater power than themselves, but they don't call him their father. Disciples said, teach us to pray. Jesus said, here's how you should open, our Father. They'd never prayed that way before. Even when Jesus said it, I'm sure they felt uncomfortable. How can we call him Father? You can't unless I go away and do what I need to do. But when I go away and do what I need to do, I'm going to come again and I'm going to get you to myself so that you'll know the way. What is the way? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man's going to know him as daddy unless they know him through me. But when you know him through me, you're always going to know him through me. Translation issue is found. In John 14, 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. The word mansions is the Greek word Monet, M-O-N-A. Sounds very much like the French Impressionist painter, Monet. But that one ends with a T. This one's different. And it's Greek, not French. Monet, mansions, is translated properly. Mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. In the respect that mansions are big. And they have a lot of room. If you think of a mansion, you don't just think of a cabin over in the corner. You think of a house with many rooms. Now, technically, the word Monet is translated as many aboding places, many abiding places, many dwelling places. But in our Western vernacular, and about 400 years ago when they translated out of Greek, if you have a house with many rooms, what's that called? Mansion. Would you be shocked to know that this verse only, this word, Monet, only appears two times in the entire Bible? Only two times in the entire Bible. Now, when I see something like that, I get really curious because I want to know the other time they used it. In fact, I get more curious when a word is used only twice than I do when it's used only once. I'm just that way. I mean, if it's used once, you go, that's just an anomaly. If it's used twice, why only two times? Well, why not three times? Why not ten times? Why not all the time? What's so different about that word? When I find that word in the other spot, I love to put them up next to each other and figure out what the two authors were saying. How did these two unconnected guys come up with the same thought? But when I find out it's the same guy, well, that's cool. When I find out it's the same chapter, that's cool. When I find out it's the same story and the same context, well, we're off to the races. But if you've studied your Bible, you know that John 14, 2, in my father's house are many mansions, where else do we ever get the word mansions? We don't. Because the translators, the next time they see it, get disturbed at the thought of using it again. 
Because mansions in this context looks like Jesus goes away and builds you a house, and that's cool. Because that gives me hope that when I die, I get a big house with a white picket fence and all my dead dogs are there. And what great hope I have in this. But remember, John 15, you abiding in a vine, was Jesus' second attempt to tell the same story. His first attempt is this, mansion verse. Because he says, in my Father's house are many abidings, many abodes, many monets. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there wasn't room for you, I wouldn't be inviting you into a relationship with Daddy. But there's room. He's got room for a bunch of sons. I'm not the only son. You get to be a son. This is what Jesus is saying. If it were not so, I would have told you. I wouldn't bother to tell you about Daddy's aboding place if you weren't welcome. But in my Father's house are many mansions. Look at the other time Monet pops up. Verse 23 of John 14. Jesus answers and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our Monet with him. And if the translators, and please, I apologize to all the translators, if they had kept their nerve, they would have used the word mansions again, because that would have caught your ear. Remember what he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And then he says, my Father will love him, verse 23, will come to him, And we will make our mansion with him. Where's the mansion? I know. Think about it for a little while. Let it process. This is what Jesus was trying to do. This is what he did. He looked at his disciples. And he says, in daddy's house are a lot of mansions. If you love me and you believe on me, guess where daddy builds that mansion? What's the verse say? In you. Mind's blown. That was the disciples. They didn't get it. So he says, okay, let's start over. I'm the vine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the vine. Daddy's the vine dresser. You guys are branches. If you stay in the vine, fruit comes out. How's that? Right? Yeah, there they go. They go, ah, and Jesus says in John 16, one of these things I write to you so that you don't stumble. See, I'm about to go to the cross, and you're going to stumble, and you're going to think, we lost. I bet on the wrong horse. Don't worry, I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you guys this way. I'm just going to go build something. It's a space in Daddy's heart, and Daddy and I are going to move that space inside of everyone who believes on me. And every time you refer to him from now on, you're going to realize that because of me, the way, the truth, the life, you get to call him daddy. And don't you ever stress again about fruit production because our mansion is in you. And daddy knows how to grow some grapes. And as long as you don't go into this transactional, I'm distant from God garbage, and you leave me and daddy right where we belong, I promise you good fruit. But daddy and I aren't done with you. We don't abandon you. Sometimes we're going to pick your branch up and snip some of that fruit off. Not so we can consume it, but because it's consuming you. Because we know you're prone to get defined by your own success and your own goodness. So daddy and I want you to be defined by relationship, by being sons, not by being good. 
I'm going to call you friends. I'm not going to call you servants anymore because you and I are buddies. You got to be buddies. You're going to live in the same house. It's rough if you're not. See, I'm just, we're bringing it down into practical language. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He says, and now once daddy and I live inside of you, we've made our mansion inside of you, we're extremely happy to be there. We don't want to go anywhere else. And I'll tell you what happens. I'm the king of kings and I'm the Lord of lords. And if I live in your house, that means the king is living in his kingdom. And if the king is living in his kingdom, everywhere you step your foot, I want to make a difference in this world. And the earth is groaning for you and me to show up. He says, everywhere you go, I get to go. He says, if you put your foot right there, guess where I put my foot? He said, there ain't going to be no footprints in the sand, two sets of footprints, and one day I'm going to carry you. He said, there's always going to be one, because you and I live in the same house. And you get to call Daddy, Daddy, just like me. And if you ask the Father anything in my name, we do it. Because we're not way over there waiting on the postcard to show up. We're right here, right now. Father, I thank you that we get to call you Father. I thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life and that no man ever really knows your daddy except through what Jesus has done. Father, I thank you that you saw fit to break through our thick skull with two good stories, one about mansions and one about vines and branches. And I pray that we do the John 16 one and that we take them and not stumble. Father, even more than that, even more than comprehension, I pray the process of what you're doing start to show itself in our lives. Patience, Hebrews says, we have need of patience that after we've done the will of God, we might receive the promise. The will of God is to believe on the one whom you have sent. And so we believe on Jesus. We've done our part in the process, which is believe. And we believe patience is necessary to watch you do your part fruit production coming out of us. Thank you for what you gave us last night, that some of these good things need snipped from our lives so that the quality of fruit is even greater. And thank you for today, for the knowledge that you are not a user. You do not use us. You live through us. We live together. We're partners. We're the same house. Fruit must follow. Give us the patience to see it in us and God in our neighbor because we get so impatient with our friends and our family and we want to see everybody doing things the way we think they ought to be done. Teach us that we don't understand the DNA of their fruit. You do. Let us rejoice where everything has its season and its time and accept that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, Pure Grace Church and Mobile. I love you, and I thank God for you. This has been a special time for me. I hope and pray that we've accomplished this thing, and that is we have grabbed hold of a piece of grave cloth that's on your resurrected body, and we have pulled. And if that hurt just a little bit coming off, you'll thank us in the morning. <laughs> God bless you. We love you.